1: Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, FIFTY at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to the African Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Thomas Zuberg. I'm thrilled to introduce today Dr. Serena Dankwa, the author of the book, Knowing Women, Same-Sex Intimacies, Gender and Identity in Postcolonial Ghana, which was published with Cambridge University Press in 2021. The book is also accessible on open access on the Cambridge University Press website. Dr. Dankwa, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. It's a huge honor to begin. Tell us a little bit about yourself. And what led you to the study of uh, Ghana and specifically Africa within this interdisciplinary framework?
2: So yeah, I had a very queer entry <laughs> into academia. I studied classical music, classical guitar, and that brought me to to radio. I worked uh, in world music programs for a Swiss uh, national radio station. And I started questioning the politics around world music and that brought me to African studies at SOAS
1: in London. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, at the time in Switzerland it wasn't or it was just the beginning of doing African studies at universities, and I didn't I wasn't de- compatible with my degree and I also felt slightly uncomfortable studying Africa yeah. in, a, in that very wide context
1: yeah.
2: at the time. And um, so yeah, I went to SOAS and that was where um, I also met a lot of um, Black queer people, and where I started asking myself after I had finished my master thesis on history in Ghana and on gendered history in during colonial early colonial period. Um, well, yeah, I, I thought I would like to study a subject um, that is that I found as a child. I was always told there are no queer people in Ghana, in Africa in general, and then I met all these women. And um, when I was thinking about doing a PhD and I started talking to people, my anthropology professor was like, what kind of women would that be mm-hmm. if you were to talk to women who love women on the continent? So I was like, "Whoa, okay, this topic is maybe not safe enough. And I, So I decided to do a PhD on politics of gender and music. I went to Ghana. I did my early pre like, research, and I just did, did, and I just realized no, actually I'm really interested more in the life histories of these women women because um doing music, especially instrumental music, as a woman is also a way of transgressing gender boundaries. Mm-hmm. And then I realized but I'm more you know I'm I'm interested in their lives more than in their music. So anyway, I, I actually I came back. To sexuality, but again, the history professor at the University of Basel, Patrick Harris at the time, unfortunately, right, he was like, ah, but there's not enough historical material. Hmm. And yeah, maybe he was right. Um, it would have been oral history, and there's always this difficulty if you study a subject that wasn't named as such, like sexuality wasn't named that you superimpose something. Okay. So, yeah, I went for anthropology, even though I always found that was the most colonial discipline of all disciplines, but it gave me the what I like about anthropology is, I guess, the freedom to also to narrate stories mm-hmm. um,
0: and kind of that intersection between cultural and um, social, sociological studies. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, let's maybe turn to the book. Let's maybe think about the title, I mean, Knowing Women, and kind of encapsulate some of the methods that you're using. So as you know, on page uh, 120, you say that knowing women emphasize this meaningfulness of female friendships and desires and the knowledge embedded in uh, tacit same-sex culture. So tell us a little bit, and you've mentioned it already, but about the origins of this book and the research questions you were really grappling with so,
2: the title, starting with the title, yeah. um, Knowing Women or Knowing Women,
0: mm-hmm. it can be
2: read in two ways. Um, so, the reason why I'm referring to knowledge is really that um, the women who allowed me to interview them um, framed their intimacies as a sort of knowledge, mm-hmm. of the knowledge of other women Mm -hmm. and also a knowledge of how to practice uh, these intimacies that are not uh, that are not named that are not um, publicly recognized Uh, it's also a way of or it's also about knowing your own desires and knowing how to pursue them despite Mm -hmm. these obstacles um yeah so it's not just in the sense of wisdom of women, but it's more like knowing women also erotically and um, knowing your own desires and, and other just an awareness of the of the mere fact that two women can actually love each other because there's not a, a lesbian discourse that you could easily tap into. And I spoke to some women I interviewed some women who were like, "Oh, other people do that too," mm-hmm. you know. And, Kind of so thought that's that's my invention and that's my treasure and something that is that is dear to my heart and you can't compare that to lesbianism or whatever you know. Um, but yeah, my re- one of my research questions was certainly when I realized in Ghana that there was no readily available queer activist community or certainly not an activist community that was female headed or or. Um, where, where women were visible, um, I realized sexuality might not be the right concept to even approach these intimacies, and most women spoke about their practices and their lovers as friends. Mm-hmm. So friendship became an important tool to to look at um, same-sex intimacies between women, and and also the term SUPI, which um, I found early on, or which a term I was kind of familiar with, um, and it was its mostly associated with boarding school intensities between girls. It also, I also heard it used in the context of boys, but much less. So I guess following uh, Sylvia Tamale's injunction that we, we shouldn't just deconstruct Africa and say homophobia is a colonial import, or at least the legislation are, yeah. but we should also reconstruct and that for me meant to actually look for local terms and pre colonial African concepts or you know, that you often find in the language or in the ways things are expressed, not always verbal language, um, to get at how these intimacies can are, are are being lived beyond a language of sexual identity. Because that's I just didn't find it. And so the challenge is really to do research on these intimacies without reifying sexuality, because that's the concept I have grown up with in Europe, Um, although I was never particularly comfortable with. But um, so, yeah, knowing women is definitely an attempt also at decolonizing sexuality and opening our lens to um, a variety of ways in which we might conceive of uh, same sex in Tennessee and it's also I mean my primary desire was just to document and, and narrate stories because that's, it's always also a way of claiming agency and of course then the problem comes in who am I to tell other people's uh, stories and the uh, problem of, of othering and um, even if uh, my father is Ghanaian and I, I had worked in Ghana for part of my childhood uh, I was very much aware of, of the privilege I had in all this and, and the differences. So that was also a big part of actually writing this book. How could the women, uh, and I'm still in touch with, with a lot of them, how could they profit from, from me doing this research? And that's just that's still a question that is, um,
0: yeah.
2: So nowadays I'm trying to do readings and, and fundraise at the same time, although I don't have any kind of development in uh, projects. Um, but yeah, I just I just find it important that, it, that the transfer between academia and the reality of the women there, but also of queer people here who also often don't have access mm-hmm. to university and to certain languages. I'm, I'm still trying to break it down and translate it and, and make it meaningful, especially to black queer people. In Europe, we're often confronted with this, oh, this is not African, and in the queer communities, again, they're exercised based on, the, you know, the, on their blackness. So, yeah, that is a big part of the motivation.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. So I think uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the life histories that you collected, or at least your practice uh, in both talking to your respondents uh, about their life histories. And you notably uh, discuss this sort of um, method of verbal discretion, indirection, uh, to notably discuss this multi sort of questions of love, friendship, intimacy. Um, and so I thought, for example, you have an example of you showing a picture of yourself to kind of elicit some of, um, the conversations that can only be brought up kind of sideways or through suggestion. How did you go about doing this research, and what were the ethical stakes? Uh,
2: so I don't know whether showing pictures of myself was already a methodology, but right. what I certainly, what I was very aware of, if I'm asking someone else to tell for them to tell me their life history, yeah. I also should a- share. A bit of, or that's also the cultural expectation when you come into someone's home mm-hmm. in that context, you tell your arrival story. Whenever we visited my grandmother, so. we first we sat down, we drank a glass of water, mm-hmm. and then we tell what brings us there. So, in the interviews, I was also always telling my story mm-hmm. and what brings me mm-hmm. there. And because I didn't want to impose that what they should talk about, but I wanted to signal that to me intimate relationships are a relevant part of a life history and not just what degrees you have or or not have and what business or petty trading you started, in that case, often. Um, So, well, the interview was actually, I only interviewed people once that we had a rapport and it was established that this is a topic that I find relevant, whatever they called it. Mm -hmm. And so when I introduced myself, I I also... um, kind of outed myself, but as you said, there's this verbal indirection, this discretion that it's not something um, that should or can be named and called out like that. So showing pictures was sometimes of my family as well, but also of friends. And and they could sense that some of these friends were, what you'd say, more than just friends. And they would react to that. And that was an entry for me to say, oh, uh, yeah, this, this is, a, is an intimate friend. This is a close friend. Um, you often had reactions where where women would also start talking about their friendships and how life-saving or how important yeah. they were. Another thing was that I worked with a, together with, um, I don't know, I never know how to call her research assistant, research associate. She's just a very... She didn't. Um, she didn't study uh, social sciences, and she she had a, she was at Polytech for a while. But we met through a mutual friend, and she offered to help me with this research. And luckily, I had a grant, so I could, could pay her, and we really became like a research team. And when we interviewed people, we did the interviews mostly in Tui and in Ga, and I speak a little bit of Tui, but I didn't speak hardly any Ga, so. This interaction was like a triangular situation, where her interest, so her name is Josephine, her her interest in the topic were also there, and it was it was really often a a conversation, and within that conversation, the women we interviewed also realized that there was closeness between the two of us, even if we weren't lovers, and and that was also often something that was picked up on. So that was also an indirect way of stating these kinds of relationships. Are are matter and are important, and of creating a bit of a home social
0: space. I think you mentioned Sylvia Tamale, and another key figure that seems to appear a lot in your uh, book is Audre Lorde, and, mm-hmm. and I was wondering um, you notably cite Audre Lorde and the uses of the erotic uh, in kind of bridging this friendship erotic uh, of the fieldwork. Um, especially, and as you say on page 21, in kind of um, being aware of the deep awareness of the intersections between the affective and material needs and desires. Um, And so I was wondering how you understand your practice and your work as grounded in womanist and queer feminist approaches, um, and how crucial that is to uh, your work. Yeah, I think that is uh,
2: really a foundation to my understanding of um, these as I earlier stated, how I, how disciplines I was
1: mm-hmm.
2: find, um, I had more of an anti disciplinary right. yeah. approach, um, but feminist perspectives from different parts of the world were, were definitely important to me. So, um, yeah, Audre Lorde um, as an Afro diasporic perspective. Um, and then on the other hand, Nigerian feminists like Ifiy Dume, who also have a critique towards um, mm-hmm. Black American lesbians and who, who especially I, I focus a little bit on this on this uh, critique by Ifi Dume, who says well Audio Lord is usurping the meanings of so-called women marriages in Africa, which have been found in over forty societies and they're rooted in um, Kinship and inheritance rules, uh, where a woman could then take on a male, a masculine role, and have children with a woman, even though um, the biological father would be another person, but she would still be considered the social father and the female husband. So, anyway, I thought this this was an interesting point where Ifi Dume is understandably. Quite angry at Audrey Lord, but at the same time she's not seeing that Audrey Lord has been marginalized by the same type of mainstream uh, second wave feminism that wasn't particularly intersectional at the time. Um, so yeah, these these discussions definitely definitely formed me and brought me actually into academia after mm-hmm. all. It was gender studies that I was interested in because I could see how questions of power, not just around gender, but all sorts of um, power relations could be discussed there. And that's where you have a lot of uh, feminists. And and nowadays, I'm thinking, while I was starting to do the research, I was looking more towards queer theories, Mm -hmm. queer feminists. And the longer I worked on it, the more I realized how I needed to look at African feminists, even though it's only very recently that African feminists have explicitly started talking about queer intimacies and that's where Sylvia Tamale comes in unfortunately her book um, Equalization as a Feminism" only came out after exactly. I finished writing it but she was definitely an inspiration uh, there is this book African Sexualities
1: mm-hmm.
2: came out and that would really encourage me as well as Ghanaian feminists at the University of Ghana who were very encouraging and uh, you know, whereas other anthropologists in, in Europe were like, oh, but this is a taboo subject and you're imposing whatnot on, on Africans. Mm. And, yeah, so that helped me a lot. And actually recently where there has been more of a homophobic uh, wave, unfortunately, in Ghana, um feminists have also become, uh, for instance, the, ne- the, the network rights. Are also also wrote a memorandum against this anti-gay bill that is supposed to come into power. I hope it's you know, we could or yeah, that it will not, but it's still pending. So anyway, I I think that was the main inspiration and the
0: people I I tried to be in conversation with. Thank you, and I think that leads us to at least the first chapter of your book, Mm -hmm. where you really give a history of where we at now in Ghana, at least in terms of the anti-gay discourse that becomes so prominent in terms of uh, public discourse and and the laws that are happening currently. And you notably mention a context of growing sexualization of the public sphere, Mm -hmm. the term and this, uh, and kind of counterbalance it potentially with this repurposing of Western gay rights by, uh, Ghanaian LGBT organizations. Mm-hmm. Part of what you show is that there's this shift that occurs in terms of economic realities that are brought about by the structural adjustment programs. So there's these new radios, there's these, this new place of the form of evangelical Christianity that uh, is more overtly yeah. anti-gay, and so I was wondering how this new moment of the kind of post-nineties transformed the public discussion on same-sex mm-hmm. intimacies.
2: Well, I, I wrote the book in like uh, two thousand fourteen. was—it's yeah. actually really a while ago—and. Yeah. Um, in, in the chapter you're mentioning, I'm focusing on uh, an event called the Homo Conference right. in 2006 that was seen as a bit of a watcher shape by uh, some researchers where um, a gay activist kind of came out and uh, was, was accused of organizing a Homo Conference. Um, but I mean, yeah, these discussions have been going, have, have started earlier, but it's become ever more aggressive. And you mentioned several factors that led to, I think, that have led up to to this development. The neoliberal media is also very sensationalist, or that's at least queer activists in Ghana are, are blaming also the media for heating up an anti-gay climate, even though there's also pro-gay
1: um,
2: media, and, and then, of course, charismatic Christianity, which is kind of increasingly obsessed with talking right. about the sexual. There's also a difference there between new, new Pentecostal charismatic churches and the older African denominations who are more sticking to this indirection. They might also talk about and practices that are not in the Bible, but they would do that in a less direct way. So, yeah, you said how did, how did that come about? I mean, one thing we have, we have to remember, it's not, I'm not saying that pre colonial societies were just benign. We don't know how people who differed from the norm in, in different ways, how, how they were treated back then. I found some traces that suggest that at least gender ambiguity was was more acceptable, Mm -hmm. and the the main issue was around sexuality was actually reproduction, Mm -hmm. and and, or rather procreation, and people who didn't have children might have been ostracized in the past as well. But it wasn't so much about uh, their sexual. Choice or orientation that might have not even been seen as of that importance. Mm-hmm. So you asked about the sexualization of the public um, through charismatic, uh, through a charismatic obsession also with, mm-hmm. with sex and with desire. And I think part of the problem is that it's easier to blame individual behavior than exploitative structures and, mm-hmm. and capitalist forces that do, produce new, new riches. Um, and, and, uh, uh, while others are, are losing out. So it's often queer subjects who are scapegoated. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people also talk about moral panic and the religion and media is definitely involved in that. But I think what has also changed historically, um, and, and uh, that's of course through is that relatedness and your alliance to a family or a position within a family um, has become less, uh, it, it's still important, but it's less defining of a subject. So someone's desires, including sexual desires, commun- com- consumer tastes become the hallmark of who you are. And and that development simply put, um, that the question what you do in bed translates into political or, or social identity. That's just um, something, a process that has ha- is happening everywhere in the world, not just in Africa. And I also think people who refuse that development, that they are, that they're supposed to, or that sex, sexuality is actually where they have to organize themselves around, um, they're also everywhere. But but in some context, it can be rewarding to adopt a a name, so adopt an identity, a sexual identity that can go with certain rights Uh, in Ghana. That is, of course, even less attractive given the homophobic climate. Unless you get funding as an activist, then you can get support through that. But usually, it's not something, it's not desirable to to um for for a lot of working class women, or at least the women. I was in touch with, they were very hesitant of putting a label on their practices. So that whole distinction between sexual identity and sexual practice um, became something that I I thought about a lot. And I don't want to make it a dichotomous relationship between identity, you know, that the Western have, in the West we have an identity in there, they just have their practices. Um, I think that's, again, a boundary drawing practice of the West and the rest. It's certainly much more complicated than that. And obviously what you do, it, it's, it does have an impact on, on who you are and how you identify in some ways, but it's not as straightforward, I think, as it's often, uh, as it's often
0: portrayed by, also by LGBT uh, activism. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe that kind of leads us back to the term supi that you mm-hmm. kind of brought up uh, earlier on in, in our conversation. You know notably that supi should be considered as a practice and an intimate same-sex, same-sex discourse that relies on different models of gift-giving and friendship. And you notably trace this uh, term to girl boarding schools in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Maybe tell us a little bit more about the multiple meanings of that term, and it seems that gift-giving is really crucial to some of the definitions some of the women you interviewed um, gave to it. How is, sort is of, gift-giving so crucial to the term and to maybe the broader kind of concept that you're using of becoming a, a knowing woman?
2: Yeah, you started with a distinction between as a public discourse, where supi has become a derogatory term, mm-hmm. almost. There's also films, Mollywood and Bollywood the film industry, that are picking up on that term, and they have really married supi to lesbianism, mm-hmm. so there's this mm-hmm. term supi-supi-lesbianism. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the other hand, supi, within an intimate discourse among women who are women, where it's much more fluid i spoke to women who went to boarding schools in the 40s and who used that term to refer to their best friends mm-hmm. without being explicit whether that had an erotic component or not but they always talked about gift giving mm-hmm. um and about i would call it a socializing process process mm-hmm. within female spaces and how you respond to a gift how you learn to read, maybe, and decipher the meanings in a gift. So these were material gifts and sometimes quite big gifts. It was really also in a context where where you feed a best friend uh, because you had your parents who give you more, for instance, at boarding schools. But it also translates into gifts in a more symbolic way, um, the gift of knowing. Always sounded to me when women spoke about maybe their first time love at school, about a senior and the junior. So there's that senior junior mm-hmm. dynamic, where you where you learn how to express attraction, or so yeah. So there was love letter writing, mm-hmm. um, and as well as uh, material gifts and and um, little sweets, sweets and stuff that was being has changed. And I think I realized that that was really an important component when I realized that um, also among adult women, it's just so important uh, who feeds whom and um, and um that the belief that there has to be some kind of reciprocation, reciprocity, and that's also the upon concept of love. It's not so much based on verbal um expressions, but but really on, on mutuality or mutual assistance and an and exchange of different kinds of gifts. And I think that's why I highlighted um, gift giving also in the context of, of supi. But we have to be careful with, with the term Supi, which is, by the way, uh, probably derived from superior uh, or supreme, and interestingly, in the Asafol companies, which are traditional secret young men societies that were quite active also during the colonial period, especially among the Fontee on the coast, and there is also a captain called the Supi captain, who is kind of a mother to that's what uh, anthropologists draw that who is kind of a mothering figure within that secret society. Um, so. I couldn't really trace the genealogy of the... Way. I had some bits here and some bits there, but it's really difficult in the current climate. Of course, yeah. Because that sexualization has, has yeah. already happened, and therefore it might not be useful any longer to the women themselves, yeah. because they they like that ambiguity. Mm-hmm. And
0: and it's kind of lost in some
2: that That gets lost yeah, yeah, yeah. when it's yeah. just translated into, into lesbianism and uh, not look at specific practices that are associated with with that term. And that's what I, what I said. sense more about learning and teaching and eventually um, knowing.
0: As you go through the different chapters, you present the many different facets that like, friendship, family intimacy and sexuality kind of uh, are defined by a lot of your respondents and mm-hmm. chapter three is really as you say by rethinking masculinity without men and you notably um look at the figure of the Obab barima um to kind of express this uh, gendered relationality uh, often linked to someone's socioeconomic power or status and mm-hmm. Often also linked to questions of seniority, age, and uh, patronage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was wondering about, um, this question of masculinity within, um, as conceived of by the women that you, um, interviewed and how you juxtapose that with, um, concepts around butchness that you usually mm-hmm. bring out. Mm-hmm.
2: So I can, <laughs> or, or masculinity and men, I came yeah. across when um, I asked one of my first interviews um, when she was talking about being the man, yeah. Yeah. while that wasn't visible physically. And when I asked, so but, but who is the man? Yeah. And then she said, it's the one who first says, I love you is the one who proposes it's nothing that is visible and mm. um, so that's i found that interesting because i've been you know um, acquainted with um, jack halberstam's work on female masculinity where it's often about uh, a physical style and something that is very visible and when you enter Field work, you enter research. You always come with your images and your concepts. Yes. Yeah. So, and one of them was female masculinity, another one was was butchness. Yeah. And so, in order to to understand the dynamics, relational dynamics, I, I did try to translate these concepts yeah. and see whether that that worked in some ways. And what I realized is that masculinity was very much understood in economic terms. Yeah. Because the one who first says "I love you" is also the one who is supposed to offer something to their lover, and in a context where where a lot of women have very precarious lives and informal jobs, and you know have to make a living from day to day, that can be important. It, it can be important that at least one of the two women has access uh, to their own room. Because a lot of people share rooms or even beds. Um, is able to, you know, provide you with a, with a meal or a beer or yeah. yeah. So within that nexus of also cooking food, feeding, um, money is, is, is in there. And, and that's where, um, yeah, masculinity and the term of barbarism itself, um, as Grisha Clark already used it or found it in the 70s and in Kumasi on market women and mm. oba meaning woman and berima meaning men. And in the combination is something like uh, masculine woman, mm. also, but also brave woman. Mm. So we can also see, you know, the sexism that a strong woman mm. must be somehow masculine. And that is also in there. I'm, I'm not saying, you know, that's the end of gender, the mm. fact that there's a term like oba berima. But, and I also again, there is a shift there. It was, it was mo- mostly positively pronounced. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't um, so much sought in the context of, of sex and sexuality. Right. So, um, and it wasn't actually, Obaberma wasn't a term that the women I interviewed used by themselves. I would ask them what they understood by Obaberma. And, right. and they were like, yeah, yeah, I've heard that. And when I was a kid, I was called that because right. I was always climbing trees and, um, but I found it interesting that it was not necessarily something that was, was negative.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And of course, today, where trans is also an important discourse, I'm sure um, questions around masculinity are changing, as just as they have changed in, in Europe. I mean, the term butchness almost seems like it's from, you know, ages ago. But I liked the whole butch-femme theories around also emotional butchness, mm-hmm because it destabilizes that notion of um, the masculine partner being the one uh, without emotions and uh, or, or being the man, whereas providing can also be seen as a female quality or as a uh, feminine quality. And here, butchness is often associated with the inability to show feelings whereas femininity is kind of the expressive partner in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think the theories around that was, was very interesting to me and that's why I kind of brought it also into the Ghanaian context. Uh, and and I guess my conclusion was mostly that in in cultures that are less visible than ours and Oyeronke Oyerumi writes a lot about that, how the West has a very visual culture, and whatever is not seen does not exist. Mm-hmm. And how questions of masculinity translate into context where it's not assumed that you can tell by just looking at a person, whether it's a man or a woman, and where it's also much easier for people to call a, a big breasted person mm-hmm. uh, as a he mm-hmm. just because the person has a certain attitude, you mm-hmm. know, and a certain uh, way of being in the world.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the great strengths of uh, so many of uh, well, the entire book is bringing out these questions of um, emotion as being and sort of friendship with the kind of material questions mm-hmm. of these relationships.
2: Yeah, no, the material materiality is, yeah. is very important if you look at queerness in a more relational right. way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not so much in terms of an individual styling and an individual choice, but something that happens within relationships. Mm-hmm. And, and if, if there is not that, yeah, if money. I think relationships everywhere are also yeah, about exactly. money and about, as you, as you said, about material realities, but it cannot be overlooked that easily when it's really about people's mm-hmm. survival and you have to ask yourself in friendship also whether or not it's sexual and your friend is suffering, you know, it should be normal that you just uh, provide for them. And I was often told by people when they saw how many women I interviewed and how many friends I had, it's like you're having too many friends. And I was like, why? You cannot have too many friends until I realized, okay, the friendship goes with obligations. And when these friends are in trouble and you have more than them, it's just more than natural that you would, Help out. And you know how it's the stereotype about stingy European research is I didn't want to fall into that trap. Of course. But then I realized okay, then I might have to limit my friendships because it's not just, well, yeah, if, if a friend has an accident, doesn't have the money to go to the hospital, you want them to die? No.
0: Maybe let's shift to the uh, questions of uh, sugar motherhood that you bring out in your chapter four. Um, which reveals I think another aspect of expression of, of status and how um certain same sex loving women frame and I guess experience their relationship. You kind of talk about this tension around sort of motherhood within the term sugar motherhood, both as this caring aspect, but there's also certain obligations, potential for abuse or violence Sometimes, How do you see kind of the term sugar motherhood being used? By your respondents or being, how you use it, does kind of chosen family, queer family literature is that helpful for you as you think mm-hmm. about concepts?
2: Well, actually, these are two, two things that I that I packed into one a little bit, but um, no, actually, I also do that in the book. I start out with sugar motherhood, and actually, the term sugar motherhood is is mine, but mm-hmm. the term sugar mother, and this is my sugar mother. That was something I, I picked up on, especially among female footballers who uh, are semi-semi-professional mm-hmm. regional football teams as football is quite um, popular in West Africa. There are these women's teams as well, supported by telecom companies. Well, they used to be, again, that's something that is is changing, sure. like the liberalisation. So anyway, um, among footballers, I found that they were often... Like kind of having this, oh, she's sponsoring me; she's my shoulder mother, and these relationships can be can be coined by quite a big age, considerable difference in in age, which is also something that we're less used to here, or we there hasn't been much theorizing around either because the ideal. Couple, whether queer or straight, is, is an egalitarian couple, which means uh, they are more or less the same age, they have similar mm-hmm. status. And, and it's, it's rather frowned upon when there's a, a big age difference, or it's like, okay, this person just needs another parent or whatever. And that wasn't the case, that negative connotations, condition. it was rather seen as necessary in mm-hmm. some ways that there's also this power difference. Yeah, and it goes along. It can go along with with abuses, um, but probably the abuse is more a consequence of the, the secrecy. As soon as things are secret, they become can become unhealthy if you cannot talk about difficulties you have in a the relationship. Uh, if they have to be worked through in another way. And what is interesting because there's obviously the whole sugar daddy discourse, and what is interesting if it's two women. Mm-hmm. Um, that there is a bit of a balancing of that power imbalance because for younger people, they often have less to lose Mm -hmm. than an older established woman who decides uh, to pursue her because as we had the whole discussion about soupy and that's something about young girls and then you stop after boarding school, that's kind of the idea. And then there's these women who don't stop and say, no, that's something that is part of me, that's part of my life and then I have to figure out a way to do that discreetly, often these women have husbands and children, and they have to organize themselves. And then you kind of have a secret lover, and there it's easier often to have a younger person. It's culturally also accepted that you mentor younger people. Mm -hmm. So even the parents of the younger girl might be happy with that agreement. Maybe the older uh, lover will pay for the education of the younger one. So there's all this. And so yeah, you could say there's a lot of more power on the side of the older person. On the other hand younger lovers sometimes when they are dropped or when their relationship goes sour they, could, they blackmail their sugar mother whereas for a man it's more acceptable uh, to have a little girl somewhere and when they break up there's not much they have to fear maybe unless she's pregnant maybe but and then there's also the fact that younger in this case it was funny that the footballers who have more of a masculine self presentation often and they're all the lovers who have more of a feminine self-presentation, partly because that's easier also to pass if you're queer. You don't want that to be too visible. Um, but the younger person also has has erotic uh, capital, I would say, as a young, you know, handsome or beautiful young person. And and when they uh, and the older person always knew when their younger lover that they might grow wings, as they say, and have other people. And so often these relationships were also not monogamous and that's where the family thing comes in when an older lover provides a younger one with money, the younger one will also help her own friends exactly. and maybe have her own erotic relationships that are then, um, yeah, where there are dependencies and there's a whole network because most people are aware that polyamory is there even if it's not as outspoken as it might be here. And there's also a lot of women complaining about that, that they want to have stable relationships, mm-hmm. modern relationships, and mm-hmm. and so on. And I, I can see where that comes from, because, yeah, it can be messy if several people have several lovers, but they don't talk about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Great, thank you very much. And I think the final facet um, that you discussing in your last uh, chapter is really from the concept of siblinghood mm-hmm. and how... Uh, some women, notably, talk about use the phrase you know, "doing everything together," to that kind of reappears in a lot of your uh, interviews. And mm-hmm. so, I was wondering, how does this kind of understanding of being siblings, how is that framed by yeah. uh, the people you interviewed?
2: Well, I thought it was important yeah, after the course. whole uh, issues around sugar motherhood that uh, you know provider love, and that yeah. is often sought. There's this uh, term, transactional sex, Mm -hmm. that um, everything seems to be so material. I also needed to give another perspective. So this chapter on siblinghood and and family is also a chapter about about love and about Mm -hmm. how love is expressed if you cannot buy expensive presents Mm -hmm. to someone else, Um, and the saying, so the chapter is called Doing Everything Together, and that was often when a relationship was more than just a friendship, more than just an erotic um, uh, sexual liaison, but where two um, women really uh, called each other sisters, and not just in terms of uh, as a euphemism for a sexual relationship, because that's obviously also always an option, because in in culture, sisters can be very close and nobody asks you why you're using the bathroom at the same time um, or why you're living together as grown-ups. So you could always be like, okay, we are like sisters or we are sisters. And, and I'm also using distinguishing between genital uh, sisterhood or siblinghood and metaphorical siblinghood because there is uh, an awareness of that distance even if the term sister or sibling is used. A lot. And I'm using the term sibling because in the tree language, Nya is, is sibling, and you have to be, if you want to say sister or brother, you add either Nya or Nya much And I thought that was also interesting. But by talking about siblinghood, I would try to talk more about practices of intimate practices, both on an everyday level, like washing together, bathing together, eating together, sleeping together, and um, Kind of sharing things not just not so much with a, with an intention of survival, but really um showing how love is is being expressed or, or romance and how these terms are also used, yeah. but at the same time also saying how the boundaries between kinship and uh, friendship sexuality are are also blurry because when two people have been. Uh, friends with benefits for a while, then uh, the, the, the aspect of the relatedness that you're growing into each other's families, into each other's networks, that you may take care of kids together, that that becomes an important aspect that may be more important than the sexual passion that fueled the whole thing. So it's it's also about, about that, how, um, and I think that's true for relationships, Everywhere, how sex is always stressed as as the main sign for for passion, but how there's a lot of practices that may be relevant to the connectedness of two people, and in this context, as soon we, as we talk about family and siblinghood, then the question of incest also comes up mm-hmm. because if you're intimate with with a person, you are. Uh, Related to and I'm just now I am learning the 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 distinction between biological and social relatedness because in the case of same-sex relationships um, You don't have the issue of procreation. So it's not about oh, but we shouldn't be together because uh, you're my cousin Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And, and by the way, that's also depends the rules around Cousin marriage are very different in different societies, and for instance, in the con context, you're not supposed to marry a matrilineal cousin, Mm -hmm. but patrilineal marriage to a patrilineal cousin could actually be encouraged. So I find it interesting that among the women themselves, in some cases, all of a sudden they realized that they were actually, biologically, so through their genealogy, Mm -hmm. related to someone they were close with, and, then, and they started, you know, questioning themselves. Well, but this is wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I spent quite some time figuring out why it was wrong, because then when you found out how they were related, it was really so far away that I'm pretty sure in a heterosexual context that wouldn't be questioned. And sometimes they didn't even know how exactly they were related, but they just knew. So I sensed that it was also something about, Mixing mixing different registers of being connected to a person, and that you didn't want to mix that. Of course, it's also for pragmatic reasons. If in context of homophobia, within a family, no matter if it's uh, if it's biological or social, within the family, if two people are very close and that's known by others, and these two women, then uh, you could have problems. Just um, based on on, on on homophobia. And another interesting thing is that some of the homophobic preaching in Ghana is or one reasoning behind this to say, well, if two women are together and because they cannot have kids, we don't even know they could ta- theoretically be related. And then wouldn't that be incest? So all these considerations there, you have these old incest, Taboos and incest rules, and in Maya Fortes and other anthropologists mm-hmm. went to a great length to document all of that, and taking family and kinship uh, onto a more more metaphorical mm-hmm. level, I, I wondered how how that plays out on that level, and I found that that it's again it, it's mostly social, whether or not two women consider each other relatives, mm-hmm. and you know that you could have different degrees of relatedness, and some would actually say, yeah, this is wrong because we're related, and the other, they have the same more or less connection, and they say, "Um, that's fine. But yeah, as an anthropologist, kinship is always interesting, and then I also looked at concepts of queer kinship formation in in Europe and the US, and how uh, the conscious making of queer families is being theorized, and there it's often about what What makes a family a family when there's not that option of having a genetic <laughs> kids together um and then there's often choice the argument of choice mm-hmm. of love and of permanence and among some of the women in Ghana who had children together without claiming queer family status, choice was often not well, you choose your lover but you often don't choose where you live. You live where there's space and sometimes that's in a family house. Sometimes that's with your lover's husband because there's no other option. Permanence is also difficult because a lot of lives have to be... You have to be flexible. You have to uh, there's always a certain provisionality, and with COVID, we're also realizing that here that things you you don't know what what how you're going to eat in two months time. But in Ghana, that's that's the permanent state.
0: Right.
2: You you know um, nothing is permanent, and there's a consciousness about that. And then love, yeah, love is also there, but again, it's not so much organized around verbal uh, statements, or it, it's again about care. That's how you show. Show love. So for me, some of the arrangements, quote unquote, that I met between women who had uh, kids or who took care of each other's elders, I would call that family, mm-hmm. but it would never uh, enter new kinship studies on, or well, maybe it does now, mm-hmm. but the classic um, lesbian gay kinship literature um, has another concept. Mm-hmm. Of queer family and again because we always come with our concepts yeah. and we try to um, so so that was something i felt something that i would want to work around more yeah. but that kind of came in at the end of my research when i when i finally was able to let go of of my own baggage of my own gaze to some extent where i felt yeah we really have to approach intimacy
0: from from another from another angle. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you had any concluding remarks about the book, and if uh, more broadly you talked about some of these strands that you left unexplored, and what are kind of future projects you would be interested in developing?
2: Well, now that I'm working for an NGO that uh, works around uh, sexual health in West Africa, actually in Francophone West Africa, but also in parts of the Balkans. And that's also working against um, gender-based violence. Mm -hmm. Uh, My my focus is is very much on how to Mm queer and decolonize development work, if that Mm -hmm. is possible at all. And um, so if I had the opportunity to 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 have just freedom to do research project, I think that would be something that I would be interested in. In the development um, context, there's this concept of gender transformative work, which basically means how can you transform um, patriarchal uh, and sexist behaviors on a household level? How can you inspire men to help in the households? and so on, and that's all good, but there's also a problem with that because it's very heteronormative. So in order to be a new man, a good man, a modern man who is you know, enabling his wife to also work and so on, you have to have a wife. And that's always um, thought of as a heterosexual middle-class marriage. I would be curious whether uh, Gender transformation could be also seen in, in a broader way. It's often just about gender roles and never about gender expression or gender identities. That that's something that I've been thinking about lately. Um, even though it's important to change role patterns, does it come at the price of refining uh, heterosexual norms? I mean, okay. Because then to be a, a, to be a a proper man to be a good man. You don't have to be aggressive or or a breadwinner or, you know, all these things. But um, you you are still a man. And that is still or even more so associated with with heterosexuality. Another thing that I would be very interested in to see how these more fluid concepts of intimacy and of sexuality translate in an Afro diasporic context in in Europe and in other parts of the world and then what I'm also working on right now is how to translate the book to black queer audiences in in, in Europe for whom um, the book was originally intended because we need a history Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of the alienation um, that black queer people experience has to do with that. Break between LGBT politics, and that's something to be seen as, as Western, although there is a growing queer African movement,
1: mm-hmm.
2: or it has been there for a long time, but it didn't name itself that. And, and on the other hand, um,
1: yeah,
2: the whole idea that queerness is un-African. Mm-hmm. So, um, there are all these exciting queer African initiatives now on the continent, but there are also um, Black queer move movements in the diaspora, so I would, I would, I'm curious. Or now, I'm kind of trying to to be more in touch with what happens here, also because I, I live, I live here in, in Switzerland. So I'm organizing kind of musical performative readings where I'm uh, working together with artists, and actors, and musicians to to try to get something out of these stories that is perhaps. Easier to tell in a narrative way, and that's also traditional African feminist writers, authors like Amata Edu, uh, who, who did write about queerness. But there are stories, and that has always been a way of broaching taboo subjects. And although the stories I'm telling are, are not fictional, um. By, by focusing on on the details and on the poetry, of the language, and how the stories are told, I think uh, that that's, that can be quite powerful. So that is not so much uh, research, but that could lead mm-hmm. um, to more research. Because I really think we have to rethink queer politics, and um, art could be a way of mm-hmm. okay. of going about it in, in a different way that is that is less less static
0: and less colonial. Yeah. So. Wonderful. Thank you so much for this very rich uh, and fascinating conversation. Um, just to conclude, uh, this was the conversation with Serena Lankwa on her book Knowing Women, Same-Sex, Intimacy, Gender and Identity in Postcolonial Ghana, which was published in 2021 with Cambridge University Press. Uh, Serena Lankwa, thank you so much for your And time.
2: it's open access. And
0: it's open access. Thank you so much. Thank you.